this is week 11. So we have one more week this semester, and that will be it until January. Can't remember the date, 19th or something, about the third week in January, and then we'll pick up. So uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for watching. And let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day that you've given us. Thank you for your kindness and grace throughout our lives and especially the grace you've shown us in salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you've given us your word when we can read about him, his ministry, his earthly ministry. And uh, we're, we're looking forward as we follow this to his death, resurrection. And we're thankful, Father, for this great plan of salvation and and the fact that you have included us in this plan. Pray, Father, now as we look into your word tonight, you'll open our hearts and the Spirit will enable us to grasp the significance, truth of what we're reading tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is week 11. And uh, we are looking at John chapter 8. We've been spending a, a lot of time the last few weeks with Jesus uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles, which began in chapter 7, verse 1. And uh, so we're in chapter 8 here, and uh, we can see Jesus is in Jerusalem, or around Jerusalem, as we'll see here, uh, for the next uh, chapters. And... Uh, Believe it or not, we're about, you know, halfway through the book. <laughs> uh, you know, that we got 21 chapters, so you might think the, the middle is chapter 10. The middle, as far as the verses are concerned, are chapter 9. Chapter 9 is about half the, 1 through 9 is about half the verses. So I'm trying to approach it like that so we can kind of cover half the verses. And then we have actually two more weeks next semester. Uh, we have 14 weeks next semester. Um, and one, one break for Easter break, though the break will not come. It'll be March the 30th. We're taking off the week that Easter's later. We're taking off the week. We started taking off the week that uh, the schools have off. They have, they have off uh, the week of March the 30th. Uh, that's when we will take off. But otherwise, so 15 weeks in total, one week break. So we're looking um, uh, all this time at chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9, and so on, 10. Um, and we are uh, right here in the fall of AD 29. So we're just a few months away from uh, the... Uh, Last week, the the, uh, the week of Jesus, last week of Jesus' life here on Earth, Passion Week, as it's sometimes called, and, uh, and so we'll we'll come into that uh, next semester. Um, so John, as we've talked about, doesn't um, doesn't cover some of the details covered in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
he has his own story to tell, and he uh, he he doesn't uh, he emphasizes certain parts of Jesus' ministry, his miracles, some miracles, but not as many as are in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, you don't have the uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> we have like Matthew, you know, we have the whole Sermon on the Mount, five, six, seven. We don't have that here in John. He doesn't cover that. He chooses to cover certain things because he has a story to tell. He's emphasizing Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, and so forth. And that's, he picks events to emphasize that. So we're looking at the, the festival, events at the festival. And last time, uh, Jesus is, after the, uh, uh, we notice in chapter 8, Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. Chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. And then he claims a heavenly origin. That's 21 through 23. He claims to be the I am of his people, 824 through 39. Now he'll, we'll see that a couple of times and it'll, it'll culminate uh, ultimately when the, the Jews finally get the point when he says I am, <laughs> before Abraham was I am, and that's, they'll, they'll get the point of who that I am is then and they'll try to stone him. And that'll bring us to the end of chapter, chapter 8. So last time we were looking at chapters after 8 verses 30 through 36. Jesus claimed to be the truth that set men's, sets men free from sin. So we covered verses 30 and 32, but let's just go back and read that and just remember what that was about. Even as he spoke, verse 30, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. And we emphasize this fact that, just like he did in chapter 2, Jesus recognized that there is belief and there's belief. There's kind of an intellectual assent that is not really a commitment or trust in Jesus. And he's making that point. One of the, one of the ways you know someone has truly trusted Jesus, been born again, is that they hold to his teaching. So he emphasizes that again because throughout his ministry, many people believed, the Gospels say, they, they believed in the sense they followed him. They were disciples. They were followers. A lot of times it was for the food, for the miracles to see that. But then he says in verse 32, remember, he said, then you will know the truth. That is, if you are really my disciples and you follow my teachings, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So, as I said, this uh, holding to Jesus' teaching establishes the genuineness of faith. It also has its own authenticating power. We come to know the truth not simply by intellectual assent, but by moral commitment. So, faith precedes knowledge. Uh, I mean, most people think, you know, rational people in the world, unbelievers think, you know, prove it to me, then I'll believe. <laughs> and the truth is, you know, faith precedes uh, really knowledge. Uh, one of my teachers when I was in my doctoral work was uh, Dr. Whitcomb, Dr. John Whitcomb. Wrote a lot of books about creation and so forth. He died, uh, I guess, this year. Uh, but I remember him telling 
the story, telling the story that uh, he went to Princeton University. He was, he was a student at Princeton, and he was a Christian. And uh, he, there was a, when he went there, this must have been, I don't know, 30s, you know, maybe a 40, you know, there was a student, uh, a Christian student movement on campus, and there was a, uh, a, a, a kind of a pastor, a, a college pastor, and uh, they would try to evangelize the students and so forth and so on. And so he, uh, he would go with this, this gentleman, this pastor. He would go, you know, to students and talk to them, you know. And they went into this one student's room, and the student, uh, you know, he said, you know, what about that Jonah and the whale, you know? I just can't, I can't ha handle that Jonah and the whale story, you know. That's just too much for me, you know. And so uh, the, this pastor, he, he wisely said, well, okay, I'll talk about that in a moment, but I want to tell you about Jesus and salvation and so forth. So he gives him the gospel, and this guy uh, accepts Christ as his Savior right there, accepts him, you know. And then Whitcomb says to this, to this guy, oh, are, you know, are do you still have a question about Jonah and the... No, not any problem. <laughs> you know, once you believe, you see, you know, that's what I've told y'all, you know, you know, people make a profession of faith in Jesus. People are given a Bible. Now we can have questions, but generally we just accept the scriptures. That's because we're, as human beings, when Adam was created in the garden, he was able to communicate with God. He knew who God was. And if we're born again, we know God's voice in Scripture. We can recognize the truth. It has this self-authenticating power. And uh, so Jesus says, if, you, if you're really born again, if you really know the truth, if you're really my disciple, you'll know the truth, and then that truth will have an effect on you. It will set you free. Uh, I mentioned that this verse has been uh, abused because... You know, it's used by all kinds of movements. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Set you free from political things or whatever, you know, uh, human things. Uh, so it's picked up. You know, the truth will set you free. Well, Jesus is not talking about, he's talking about spiritual freedom here. Now, they don't understand that. They think he's talking about physical freedom. And they say, verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. They don't know about you know, slavery, bondage. We, we've, never, we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Verily I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. I say, since Jesus is offering freedom, the implication is the Jews are currently slaves. This they deny. We are Abraham's descendants, never been slaves. Now, that's not exactly true, although the Jews had in the past and were now in political subjection, they argued that they enjoyed spiritual inward freedom and privilege. They have, they have been you know, in bondage to the Babylonians, the Assyrians, <laughs> to the Romans, to the Greeks. You know, they've had a lot of masters. Rabbi Aqaba, very famous rabbi after Jesus' time, is credited with saying that all Israelites are king's sons, that is, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this leads Jesus to explain, when they say we're not slaves, to, to, to explain what he means by that. 
he's talking about <laughs> spiritual freedom, freedom from slavery to sin. And so he says, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Um, this phrase here, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, this has a durative idea. It doesn't mean just sin once, though when we sin, it, shows, it can show slavery to sin. It's talking about people who practice sin. So, you know, the King James tried to bring this out. They said, whoever committeth sin, that E-T-H is kind of a, a durative idea, whoever committeth sin. And you, you're familiar with that famous John, 1 John 3, 9 ver, verse that says, whoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remain him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Uh, the, uh, some verses, some uh, some uh, translations like the ESV, notice they say, John answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin. So our verse that says, commits sin. Now, actually, the Greek just says, does sin. Two words. The verb does, but that does is a durative idea, continuous idea, who does, keeps on sinning. So the ESV has said, practices sin. And the New American Standard would say something like that. I think the older NIV said something like, sometimes translators put in words because when you read, you know, 1 John 3, 9, it's always a problem. Whoever is born of God doesn't commit sin. So people have taken that, you know. Uh, I met a man once. Uh, one time uh, I was visiting, this is many years ago. He was a... Uh, Pentecostal, charismatic guy, Pentecostal guy, not but you know, he said he had never sinned. He never sinned. Remember, Pastor Ken tells a story about his uncle who took over the church that his father pastored. Uh, he said he had never sinned since he was because they, they, you know, they think that the baptism sort of, well, they believe in their holiness denomination. They believe that. Uh, that you are perfect. You can live a life where you never sin. Now, they have to redefine sin as uh, a, a transgression, an actual transgression. They're not talking about thoughts. or, but So they, when they see a verse like 1 John 3, 9, who does not commit sin, they think, well, okay. That means Christians don't commit any sins at all. You know? And so uh, the, the, whole, the whole holiness movement was based on that, that you can get based on John Wesley's teaching, you can have an experience in your life where you never sin again. You can be perfect, which is unfortunately, you know, it's not true. <laughs> and it's, it's very, it's, it's confusing and all that. But the reason it's confusing is because that translation might suggest that. But notice the ESV says in 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning. They're trying to they're adding some words, but that's true. It's genuine. It's, it's, that's what it's actually saying. So Jesus is saying here the same kind of thing. Very, very, I'll tell you, he who sins, that is, practices sin, has a lifestyle of sin, is a slave to sin. And that's exactly what the New Testament teaches. Um, 
Jesus is talking about the difference between freedom and slavery, freedom to sin and slavery to sin. Um, and this is what the Apostle Paul spends a lot of time talking about in Romans 6. Romans 6 is the, is the, is the key chapter on this idea of slavery to sin. And Paul says one of the, the difference between an unsaved person and a saved person is an unsaved person is a slave to sin and a saved person is not a slave to sin. We still sin, but we're not slaves like we were. So Romans 6, 6, he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away that we should no longer be slaves to sin, our previous unsaved condition. For sin shall no longer be your master. So when we were unsaved, sin was our master because you're not under law but under grace. And Romans 6, 16 and 17, there's only two conditions in this world. Don't you know that when you, used, when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set from, free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. So there's only slaves to sin and slaves to righteousness in this world. You're in one category or the other. So it's just saying that, it's not saying we are always do righteous acts, but our basic disposition is to want to do righteousness. We want to please God, even though we fail. Whereas the unsaved person, their basic disposition is not that way. They're, they're, they're a slave to sin, to their sinful desires. And so Jesus is saying, really, you are unsaved, these people. They think of themselves as right with God as most religious people do, you know. Maybe, I don't know if you were religious before you were saved, but many people, there's less and less religious people. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, if you came to Detroit 40 years ago, 50 years ago, most of the people were probably pretty religious. I imagine they were Catholics, you know, Roman Catholics or something, and they were fairly religious. But you can, you just find plenty of people now who just have no religious ideas, no they have no, no, no allegiance to anything anymore. They're just, they just nothing anymore, which in some ways is easier <laughs> to deal with if you're talking to people than dealing with people who are just committed to a religion. You know, that can be sometimes difficult to try to get through to them because they are like these uh, Pharisees and religious leaders. They're, they believe they're right. They know they're right. And so it's very hard sometimes to break through that. Well, verse 35, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus now explains what it means to be a slave. In contrast to the son, that is Christ, the, slaves are, the Jews are slaves to sin, who have no permanent place in the family, the family of God. Only the son of God can bring freedom. So true freedom that Jesus is talking about. It's not freedom to do whatever we want to do. That's how this verse is used, you know. The truth will set you free to just do whatever you want to do. That's not what Jesus is talking about, and that's not true freedom. That's slavery. <laughs> that's what we were when we were unsaved. We were slaves to do whatever we wanted to do, which was sin. That's what we wanted to do. But liberty, this liberty is to do what we ought to do. 
what we ought to do, what God wants us to do. That's true, real freedom. So E here, Jesus claimed for himself a sinless character, verses 37 through 50. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, as they claim, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. The Jews tied their self-professed freedom to their status as the descendants of Abraham. So Jesus now turns to that question. At one level, the purely physical, Jesus acknowledges that they are Abraham's descendants. I know that you're Abraham's descendants. But at the inward spiritual level, they fail as shown by their conduct. They seek to kill Jesus. So it's true they're Jews, but you know they're not really Jews in the sense they should be. In the real, they're not really born again, you know. I mean, Paul uses this same kind of uh, expression in Romans 2. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly. Well, in a sense, that's not really true, Paul. <laughs> I mean, if you're born a Jew, you're a Jew, you know. But he's talking about what it really takes to be a Jew that pleases God, you know. A person is not a Jew who is only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. There was more intended, God intended more than that. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. So God was interested in circumcision of the heart. He wanted these Old Testament believers, the Old Testament Jews to be circumcised in the heart, to have a new heart that is to be born again, as he told Nicodemus. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. Um, you're, you're not really Abraham's descendants. And it's proof of that is you're looking for a way to kill me. You have no room um, for my word in your heart, he says. Um, verse 38, I'm telling you what I, that I have, seen the, I have seen. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence. And you are doing what you have heard from your father. They say then, Abraham is our father, they answered. Jesus, if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. While the Jews are falsely claiming Abraham as their father, Jesus is rightly claiming God as his. Jesus' conduct displays his true paternity. Unfortunately, the same is true of the Jews who follow their father. It's not until we reach verse 44, remember John 8, 44, that he identifies who their father is, their spiritual father. You are of your father, the devil. You know, he'll tell them that ultimately he's getting to that. Um, but the point here is that the fact that they're trying to kill Jesus means they're not really the true spiritual children of Abraham in that most important sense. They're not children in the spiritual sense. Verse 41b here, We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Naturally, the Jews do not appreciate Jesus' insistence that their conduct disallows their claim to Abraham as their father. His charge makes them spiritually illegitimate. Thus they reply, you know, you are illegitimate children. They reply to him, we are not illegitimate children like you are charging. 
Now it's hard to know about this slur here. You know, I mean, we're not illegitimate. Are they just responding to Jesus? That is, you know, he said, Abraham's not your father. Are they just saying, hey, we're not illegitimate. Abraham is our father. You know, some people see this as some slur about Jesus' own birth. Is there some question about that? You know, do they, you know, Joseph and Mary, we don't know. You know, I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us, but there was a question about that. Now, Joseph was going to put Mary away privately, but was her pregnancy known outside? And, you know, I don't know. So it's possible that they may be saying something about him, Jesus. I I don't know for sure. Um, Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from the Father. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. So the fact that Jews do not accept and love Jesus is proof they do not know the Father. Their negative response to Jesus proves their spiritual condition. The reason why they could not understand Jesus' words was due to, not due to any fault with the communicator, but with the spiritual condition of the hearers. So they're really unsaved, as you'll say, they're children of the devil, so therefore they're not going to comprehend the significance of Jesus' words. This always brings us back to that you know, verse of Paul, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Uh, the person without the Spirit does not accept. That means they don't welcome the things that come from the, from the Spirit of God. The things that come from the Spirit of God or the Word, whatever, the Word of God. But they consider them foolishness. And they cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. That's the problem here. Verse 44, you belong to your father the devil and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Since the Jews are not children of the Father, only one paternity remains, the devil. That is, spiritually, they're following the devil. From the beginning of man's history, the devil has opposed God's truth and deluded men. Satan was ultimately behind the plot to kill Jesus. Now this reference to uh, the devil as a murderer from the beginning, uh, you know, there's various possibilities. Um, The most common one suggested is that um, it refers to the fact that he, in a sense, murdered Adam. He he killed Adam spiritually. He robbed Adam of his spiritual life because he tempted Adam and Eve and the fall and so forth. So in that sense, he, he killed him spiritually. Remember, God said that when you eat the fruit, you'll die. You'll die spiritually. So um, the literature of Jesus' day commonly recognized this death was the result of Satan's initiative. This is a piece of extra biblical Jewish literature written sometime in, around Jesus' time, first century B.C., maybe a little late, first century A.D., called The Wisdom of Solomon. It's not really written by Solomon, but some Jewish writer. For God created us, 
for incorruption and made us in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy, death entered the world and those who belonged to his company experienced it. Uh, so I think most likely it's referring to the fact that um, the devil is a murderer from the beginning and that he in a sense murdered Adam spiritually. Some people see a reference here to Cain, that's possible, who murdered Abel, remember? Um, John will say later in 1 John chapter 3, do not be like Cain who murdered the evil one, who, who, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. So he does make a reference to uh, the devil influencing Cain uh, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. So... Uh, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So that, that, that could be that the Jews have the devil as their father because they'd like to kill Jesus as Cain killed Abel. That's, that's another possibility. You know, it's hard to, to know what the exact allusion here Jesus is referring to. In both cases, certainly the devil is behind, you know, that kind of thing, obviously. Verse 45, Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The children of the devil will be so characterized by lies that they will not be able to accept the truth precisely because it is the truth. Their unbelief is a result of their spiritual inability. That is... We call it depravity. Jesus always spoke the truth of God, and if the Jews had possessed the nature of sons of God, they would have recognized the voice of God speaking in Jesus. Jesus hurled the challenge to them to prove him guilty of sin. So although the Jews, you know, uh, may have accused him of some individual sin, like, you know, breaking the Sabbath, we've seen that, they are accusing him of breaking the Sabbath, uh, they would probably have to admit that his general conduct was, was unassailable. I mean, you know, you just, there was nothing they could really point to in his general conduct that would characterize him as a sinner. Um, I mean, the assumption here is that Jesus is saying, you know, before God, before the high court of heaven, you would not be able to prove me a sinner. You really couldn't come up with any evidence that would prove me guilty. Uh, I say here the unambiguous testimony of the early Christians testified to Christ's sinlessness. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin. Hebrews 4.15, yet he did not sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. 1 John 3, 5, and in him is no sin. So that's the universal testimony of Scripture. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor him. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Jesus' opponents now turn to personal abuse. They accuse him of being birthed by a Samaritan and of being demon-possessed. 
course, Jesus denies he's demon-possessed. His behavior is actually a result of his obedience to the Father, which honors the Father. Christ does not seek his own glory, but the, but the Father seeks Christ's glory. I mean, God's approval is everything because God, of course, is the judge. Then F here, Jesus claimed to the power to bestow spiritual life. Very truly, I tell you that whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Of course, Jesus has the words of eternal life. Remember John 6, 36, I won't go back there, but therefore whoever obeys his word will never see death. Physical death has no power over spiritual life, which is eternal life. Again, the Jews are thinking only on the physical level. Abraham and the prophets were mediators of God's word to others, yet they died. So to the Jews, obviously, only a demon-possessed person could think that his words are greater than Abraham or greater than the prophets. I mean, that's what a natural person, <laughs> an unsaved person, would think. Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I know him and obey his word. Jesus insists that he has not tried to promote himself since he knows that any self-glorification independent of the glory of God means nothing. So the nature of Jesus' glorification, you know, that we're talking about here, um, my Father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me, the nature of this glorification is not in some outward display that the Jews are going to see right now. Um, the, the, this glorification will be seen in Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, his return to glory, that is. He's going to die. He's going to be glorified. He's going to be having the glory that he had with the Father. Uh, that's what he's talking about here. He's the one who ultimately glorifies me. He's going to raise me from the dead. He's going to glorify me, and, and that will be seen. And the fact that the opponents of Jesus, again, reject all this just proves they don't really know the Father. I mean, this is easy for us to see. We know it, but it's hard to see, you know, if you're living in that day in the sense that <laughs> these are the religious leaders. They, they, are the, they are the representatives of God and so forth. And so, you know, how can this guy say who he is? You know, that, how are you going to believe that? <laughs> well, it takes God enlightening you, doesn't it? It takes God working in your heart to reject uh, that kind of thing. Uh, Jesus claimed an eternal existence. Here we come to it. John 8, 56 through 59. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. 
you are not yet 50 years old, they said, and you have seen Abraham? The Jews have made frequent appeal to Abraham in this chapter, and the truth of the matter is that Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, Jesus says. Now clearly Abraham, how clearly Abraham saw Christ is not clear. That is, what does Jesus mean here? He saw my day and was glad. I mean, you could, you can't rule out the possibility of special revelation that it's not in the Old Testament. There's nothing in the Old Testament that, you know, says, hey, Abraham, this, my son is coming. His name's going to be G. You know, it could be, but there's nothing in the Old Testament to say that. But there's always the possibility of individual revelation to Abraham that we don't know about. Most people see something less direct, some less direct seeing, such as the promises of Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Um, so, I mean, in that verse, we understand all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you as salvation to the end of the earth. That not only the Jews, but Gentiles. So he'll bring salvation that will be available to all. Uh, so maybe, you know, maybe that's what he's talking about, that Abraham was given this promise of sort of a universal salvation available to all people through you, Abraham. And Paul will make a big deal of that. He's not only the father of the Jews, he's the father of the Gentiles too, in a sense, because of that, what, what uh, that verse is saying. Um, so it could be that. Um, uh, I will bless them. You know, we read that. Um, could be, or the rejoicing Abraham must have had when he found the ram to replace his son Isaac on the altar of sacrifice. Remember, it says, you know, God talks about providing a, the angel, providing a sacrifice there. God will provide him. You know, Abraham says to his son, God will provide a sacrifice. It sounds like he knows something, you know. It sounds like, <laughs> sounds like he knows more than, than you would think there, you know. So maybe God gave him revelation uh, about all this. We don't know. It's not, we, it's not recorded for us in Scripture. Um, so the Jews would be willing to say that, that, that Abraham saw the Messianic age, uh, they, they might say, yeah, he saw that there would be a Messiah. We, we can agree with that. But the one thing's for certain, it's not you. <laughs> it's not Jesus' day. You know, it's, this is not, you're, you're not bringing in the Messianic age. And, uh, you know, clearly you're, you're crazy because you're not even old enough to be a contemporary of Abraham. You're telling us you, that, that, you know... <laughs> that Abraham saw my day, you know, and you're Abraham, have you seen Abraham? You know, this is all too much for them. But then he lowers the boom, 58. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Now Jesus Jesus now makes an extraordinary claim. Before Abraham was born, I am. 
If he had only wanted to claim existence before Abraham, as he could have simply said, he could have said, before Abraham was born, I was born. You know, he could have said that. Before Abraham was born, I was born. That'd still be extraordinary. <laughs> but it, it would just mean, you know, I was born before Abraham. Instead, he uses this timeless I am that we talked about. This is that, you know, that ties it back to, uh, you know, what God said to Moses on Mount Sinai. I am that I am. You know, this timeless statement that we get the name Yahweh from or Jehovah from. Jesus is identifying himself as the I am of the Old Testament. This is, well, you know, they can take a lot of the things he says, but uh, this is too much. So the prescribed penalty for blasphemy was stoning. You know, a lot of, there was a lot, of, a lot of things required stoning in the Old Testament, but one of them was blasphemy. And this man, if he's just a man, <laughs> he's clearly blaspheming here to say, to identify himself with God and say, I am. And so they, they attempt to carry it out right here. They're going to stone him right here. Now, you would think, some judicial action would be required. That, the Old Testament would require something. You'd have to have a trial, have to have witnesses. Or, but they're so incensed, they're not waiting for any judicial action here. They're just going to stone him immediately. But he was able, again, now we don't know if this is some miraculous thing here again or he's just able to slip away. But somehow he gets away, departed. And so these are the kinds of things you remember that kept Jesus in Galilee. I kept referring earlier to the fact that Jesus didn't want to go down to Galilee, you know, I mean, go to Judea. And later we're going to see when we get to chapter, uh, uh, chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. So remember, Jesus says, let's go down to uh, Bethany. And, uh, you know, my friend Lazarus has died. And Thomas makes this statement. He'll say, you say, well, okay. <laughs> if you're silly enough, Jesus, to, if you're crazy enough to go down to Judea, we'll go and die with him. See, let's, he tells the other disciples, let's just go on down and die with him. So Thomas is saying, you know, if we go down there, look what's happened. You know, that's what we know what's going to happen when we get down to Judea. Uh, so go to Jerusalem. We get to Jerusalem. Uh, let's just stay over here in Bethany. We're a couple miles away from Jerusalem, you know. But if we go down there and the Jewish leaders, so we'll have that statement. Remember that when Jesus, when Thomas says, let's go, let, let's go with him and die. He's, I think he's talking about, most think he's talking about this problem right here, that death is imminent, you know. And uh, Jesus has to be careful about his ministry because he's saying a lot of things and there, you know, his hour has not yet come, but it's coming. And uh, we'll see that when we get to the later chapter, get to the Passion Week. All right, we come now to John chapter 9, A Blind Man and the Shepherd, 9-1 through 10-42. The, we'll just get to chapter 9 here next couple of weeks, we see the healing of a blind man, chapter 9, 
verse 1 through 41. From verse 14, we learn that this healing took place on a Sabbath while Jesus was still in Jerusalem after the festival of the tabernacles. So we're still around that time of the festival of the tabernacles, the, the end of it there. Here's the miracle, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? At this time, Jesus and his disciples encountered a blind man. How they found out that this man had been blind from birth is unknown. Perhaps he was someone well known to them. The disciples used this occasion to raise the question of the relation between sin and suffering. They assumed that his blindness was the direct result of sin, either his or his parents. Now, on a very broad theological level, they're correct that all the suffering we see in the world are the arthritis in my back <laughs> is due to sin. Not necessarily my personal sin, but Adam. You know, when Adam sinned in the garden, he fell and he brought physical death ultimately uh, and all the things that come with that, uh, the decay of the body and so forth like that. So they're correct in the sense that suffering and death are the result of the fall. But you can't make a direct connection uh, between, you know, the sins and suffering of a particular individual. You can't say because this person is suffering this particular thing that it's because of sin. We know that could be a reason, you know, 1 Corinthians 11, we know that that can be a reason. Sometimes God brings suffering under our life to chastise us. It could be, it could be true, you know, but the problem is as you get old, we're all going to decay and, you know, so it's going to happen no matter what, no matter how good you are. <laughs> so there's no, there's no way to correlate those two directly like they're trying to do. Now, Jewish rabbis, from what we understand, they believe in this, what the disciples are, are telling Jesus. They believe in this direct cause and effect relationship between suffering and sin. You remember even Job, friends, you know, that Job is suffering, right? <laughs> and they say, consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? I mean, their point is, Job, just tell us what you did, man. <laughs> man, this calamity that's come on you and your family and you, you've done something, buddy. You, you've done something wrong. There's got to be something. This just doesn't happen to, to people that claim innocence like you, right? I mean, there's got to be some reason. So they had this cause and effect, this uh, retributive kind of judgment uh, sort of thing. That's all through the book of Job there. And we know that some rabbis, some teachers believe that a person could sin in the womb. I, I'm not sure how that <laughs> works out, but 
they, they do say you, you, a, a baby, a fetus or a baby could, could, could sin in the womb somehow. Uh, and they also said a sin committed by a pregnant woman could cause a baby to be born, you know, with defects and stuff like that, such as maybe this, this woman worshipped at a pagan temple. She went to a pagan temple. Uh, that would implicate the fetus, and, you know, this kind of thing. So they had all these reasons. So the disciples are displaying a common view. You know, this guy was born blind. So did he sin in the womb? <laughs> Or did his mother sin? His parents sin somehow? They, you know, this is what it is. Verse 3, Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sin, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now that's a helpful, helpful piece of truth, but it's also a difficult piece of truth too, isn't it? I mean, Jesus said the reason this happened to this man you know, we can look upon him and say, poor guy, look, he's, he just, this is awful, this is terrible. But God's God and we're not. <laughs> and God has his purposes. And that can include a lot of human suffering. It can include us, you know. I mean, God has his purpose why he's doing all this. Now, thankful, those of us who know him and are saved, you know, it's not the end of the world for us. We have eternal life, you know, and all that. So we... we you know, even though we can still complain, obviously. But um, Jesus says, no, there's nothing, there's no sin involved here at all in the individual. Sometimes people suffer and die. You know, we see people, I mean, I've known a lot of people. I mean, I I think often of a friend of mine who was a seminary professor at Clark Summit uh, in Pennsylvania. Rod Decker, <clears throat> and that's his name. And uh, he was just a wonderful person. Just a, he was a, just, a, just a godly man, a very godly man, and a, and a good scholar, uh, doing a lot of good work. Uh, I can remember when Pansy and I were in Atlanta for a conference, and I found out he had prostate cancer. This was years ago, some years ago. But, you know, there he is. He got prostate cancer and died. Why? I mean, he's a very godly guy. Very, very, very godly guy. And doing great work. A wonderful person. You know, why did God take this guy? You know, what, <laughs> what could be behind that? I don't know. You know, we just don't know. God does that. He has a plan for his glory that just th we're thankful we have this kind of verso because this helps us, doesn't it, to say, well, we may not understand this, but God has a greater purpose. God has a greater purpose. And, you know, maybe one day we'll see it. You know, some people say, we'll, we'll, when we get to heaven, it'll all be understood. Well, I, I don't know if that's true. We're not omniscient. We'll never know all God knows. I think we'll know a lot more. You know, we'll understand what God is doing more, you know. But we won't be unhappy in heaven. We'll be rejoicing and We'll be able to accept all this easier than we accept it now, I think, you know. But we, we, it's just good to know that, that these things in this life, all these terrible things that happen to people, 
they're not just random things that happen. They're just part of God's plan, and God's a good God, and He has a good purpose. God works all these things for His glory and for our good. So as Jesus says, as long as it's day, we must do the works of Him who sent me. Night is coming when no, man, no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. He comes back to that truth again. Although it's true that all suffering is due to sin in a general sense, in the case of the blind man, Jesus insists that no personal sin of the man or his parents is responsible for this calamity. Rather, this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. While God is not morally responsible for the evils in, this, in the world, still his plan includes the evil acts of men in order to accomplish his desires. Even, even, even evil ultimately contributes to God's greater glory. The we in verse 4 associates Jesus' disciples with him in his good works. As long as it is the day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Those works are to accomplish the task given him by the Father during the day of his earthly ministry. And one of those tasks, he says, is to reveal him as the light of the world. By, and, and he's doing that by granting sight to this blind man. So this physical sight is representative of this spiritual sight that he's able to grant. Um, and, you know, Jesus is, still, Jesus is still the light of the world after his ascension. He says the night is coming when no one can work. He's still going to be the light of the world after his ascension, but the light is shining more brightly while he's here on earth. Here he is, the Messiah right on earth. The night refers to the time when the cross comes and he's taken away. Um, the night ultimately brought, you know, when Jesus dies, resurrected, it brings ultimately a night on many Jewish people who refuse to open their light eyes to the world. They had the light right there with them, you know. <laughs> but once he's gone, you know, they're left in their blindness in a sense. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Jesus' use of saliva in the healing of the man is similar to the healing of the deaf and mute man in the Decapolis in Mark 7 and the blind man in Bethsaida in Mark 8. In those cases, saliva was directly applied, but here a mud pack is made and then applied to the man's eyes. We should not attribute any medical or medicinal properties to the mud. Clearly, Jesus often healed without any means. It's unclear why Jesus chose this particular means and if the saliva has any special significance. Well, there's various answers here. Some see an allusion to Genesis 2-7. Remember, the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. Many people think here that what's going on is the Jews um, had a lot of substances. Well, any human excretion was considered unclean. Blood, whatever, saliva, this, this you know, spitting, this would be making you unclean. Um, and Jesus often uh, 
heals the unclean. He touches the leper. You're not supposed to touch a leper. You'll be unclean. But that doesn't make Jesus unclean. Jesus touches the leper and cleanses the leper, and it doesn't affect him. He's not unclean. So most likely, it's probably showing his authority here. You know, this spitting on this stuff, this should be an unclean act. It shouldn't result in what, it, what happens here. But amazingly, what is unclean, Jesus is able to make clean. <laughs> he, it's, it's sort of showing his authority. Like he touches the leper, that shows his authority. So maybe that's what's going on here, why Jesus does that sort of thing. Most people would, would be shocked. Whoa, what's he done? You know, but, you know, look what happened here. This is impossible. He made the unclean clean. Verse 7, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. John sees Jesus' command for the blind man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam as significance since he calls attention to the meaning of the name. Siloam is a transliteration of a Hebrew word meaning to sin. In other words, it's really a Hebrew word that's brought into Greek in this sense. Just tr the letters are just made into a Greek word. Uh, and the Hebrew word means to sin. Apparently, John wants his readers to see that the blessing that the man was to experience really comes from the Messiah, the sent one. Um, so the man does as he's told. He comes home seeing. He washes in the pool of Siloam. Remember, that's, we, we, know, we saw where that was, south of Jerusalem um, there. Um, so although the healing is as thorough as the man's obedience the power doesn't really come from his obedience. It comes from, uh, it doesn't come from a pool <laughs> that means sent. <laughs> it comes from the sent one. You know, there, there's this, all these references to sent. He sends the man to the pool that means sent, but the healing really came from the sent one, that is Jesus himself. Well, that's going to bring a tremendous reaction and questions and so forth as we see here in John chapter 9, verse 8. But why don't we wait for that and we will come back to that next week, Lord willing. All right. Thank you so much. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week for our final lesson this semester.